Hello and welcome back to Silver Age Silver Stream, a podcast where we watch, rate, and review sci-fi, cult, superhero, and other stereotypically geeky films. I'm your co-host, Casey Jarms. And I'm your other co-host, Riley Thorpe. And, I mean, we've done this series before. It's Harry Potter. We all loved it as kids, and now we're kind of, eh, towards it as adults, because the author fucking sucks. But yeah, Harry Potter, it's good fun. Yeah, so let's just get this out of the way. Fuck Rowling! We don't condone anything that J.K. Rowling has said or done. That out of the way. Let's move on. We don't support that. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, this is the third Harry Potter film, Prisoner of Azkaban, directed by Alfonso Cuaron, not Chris Columbus, because the production of these movies basically took place literally back to back to back, Mm -hmm. because they had to film them while those kids were growing up. Yeah. And Can't have, like, a Walking Dead thing where the whole series takes place over two years but was filmed over ten. So, like, in the later seasons, Carl is supposed to be, like, twelve. Mm-hmm. But, like, that is a grown man. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, plus Chris Columbus. He moved on to bigger and better things like Pixels. And that Five Nights at Freddy's movie that is absolutely happening. Yeah, God, when was that announced? 2015? Probably. Fuck. So, the production of this movie began towards the end of the previous film, Chamber of Secrets. So Chris Columbus legitimately was physically unable to devote any time whatsoever to the production of this one, or to, to directing this one, rather. He stayed on as producer, obviously, but due to the fact that he was finishing up Chamber of Secrets, he had to give the director's chair to Alfonso Cuaron, who at the time was a very interesting and almost controversial pick for Harry Potter, because the film that he did directly before this was a fantastic Spanish movie called Y Tu Mama Tambien, which is a very raunchy comedy in Spanish. So Fucking of, tight. So a lot of people were like, wow, this guy is going to be making Harry Potter? But he was actually specially selected by the producers and by J.K. Rowling herself to be a part of this franchise. They're like, they recognize the quality of filmmaking that he's able to provide. And he provided a very natural and very necessary shift in tone for the Harry Potter yeah, franchise. I, yeah, like I like the first two Harry Potter movies to various levels, but I think the change in director was a good call because this one is when it starts to get much darker, much more mature mm-hmm. as a film and under Corone's direction it works very well and you can feel the change the shift in director from this onward Mm -hmm. compared to the chris columbus ones it's like every how many directors did they even go with four yeah the other two directors i forgot their names they david yates they really did like someone else corone's style and it especially gets continued in the fourth one like that one starts off fucking terrifying what i appreciate about the first two is this sort of whimsical light-hearted take on magic whereas this movie feels like a brother's grim fairy tale mm-hmm. like it is dark and twisted in a way that just has such a rich aesthetic and a rich atmosphere while also keeping that sort of light-hearted tone at the same time doing some dark shit, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, people are under threat of actual violence. Like, that's one of my biggest things with the actual plot of this movie. We talked about this in the review of the first two movies. The plot of both those is a mystery. If you watch our previous episodes, 
that's a plug. We talk about how they're really shitty mysteries. They're yeah. just not well done conceptually. Yeah. But what I really like about this film in particular is, A, it gets away with the mystery element of it to an extent, uh, for the most part. I mean, it does have a bit of a mystery. It's a better mystery, though. Mm-hmm. In the book, they remove like half the clues in this version, which we're going to yeah. talk about. What I really appreciate is that the film, like right out the gate, there is an active threat to the life of Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, the previous two films, it was like, yeah, you know, there's something weirds going on and Harry needs to solve it. But no, in this one, a criminal named Sirius Black, who everyone knows has a personal history with Harry, except for Harry. Everyone's all like, don't go after him because they know who he is. Yeah. They're like, yeah, he's going to go after him. He's like, why would I go after this guy? He's trying to kill me. And they're all like, no reason. No, 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 no. no, that's, no. Just, that's just the Harry Potter series in general. Should we tell these important things about Harry's life to him? Nah. No, fuck him. This criminal named Sirius Black, one of the most violent and hated criminals in the history of the wizarding world, has escaped a maximum security penitentiary Azkaban and is now on the loose and everyone believes he's going after Harry Potter. And this is also the film that introduced the political aspect of the Harry Potter wizarding world. What with Cornelius Fudge being a player in the film. And he's using Harry as a pawn in his political scheme. And that gets expanded upon as the franchise goes on. But this is really where the, the film starts exploring that. Yeah, to an extent. To an so, extent, but it, it's still present. One just jumped right into this. This movie begins with Harry doing magic outside of Hogwarts. He's not allowed to do that. They make a big deal of it. And no, he's just Lumos praying light under his sheets. He doesn't even need that. Buy a fucking flashlight. Right away, this world building has been contradicted. God damn you, Harry Potter. Following that, Vernon's sister Marge, who breeds bulldogs, which yeah. is just an idyllic job for me personally. Yeah, then bulldogs again, bulldo- are great. Bulldogs are great, but they're abominations to evolution. Oh yes, yes, we fuck those dogs so bad. Yeah, they're adorable though. Anyway, this is the scene, what opens up such a very darkly comedic scene, where Harry Potter blows up his Aunt Marge. For context, he inflates her like a balloon, which is someone's fetish. He does not, like, throw a bomb at her. But yeah, Harry blows up Aunt Marge because she says a bunch of really fucking awful things about his parents right in front of her. Which, by the way, her saying, of course Harry's awful. He has that bad genetics, just like his mother, right in front of Petunia and Dudley. Mm -hmm. Like, okay... But secondly, yeah, Harry just loses control of his magic and she inflates like a balloon. Because, haha, fat people. Yeah. Well, first off, Aunt Marge is played by the woman that played the principal in the Matilda film, directed yeah. by Danny DeVito. Yeah. Trench I didn't know Bowl that. or some shit? Yeah, yeah. Trench Bowl. Yes, that's it. The same actress. I didn't know that. What I think is really crazy to think about is I understand conceivably why Aunt Petunia would have animosity towards Harry because Mm -hmm. that's explored. She is jealous that Lily had magical powers and she Mm -hmm. didn't. And then she was special and all that, but she that manifested itself in her understanding of this as she's a freak. And that gives her that hatred towards Harry. What the fuck do why does Marge like Vernon is an at like because they're just a bunch of racist assholes is why. That's like that's my thing. Is like they have legitimate Vernon and 
to an even more extent, Marge, have absolutely no reason to hate Harry. Yet they aren't. Like, I want to know what their fucking parents were like. Because you gotta know that they were just the worst kind of people in the world. Yeah. Like, they actively hate this guy. They have no familial, like, they have no personal relationship with. Apart from the fact that this infant was dumped at their door. And then Marge is like, oh yeah, my brother, that happened to him. So... I'm just going to actively let my bulldogs attack that kid, which happened in the book. There's an entire section of the book, or a couple pages, devoted to this one experience Harry had where he was treed by a wild bulldog. Also in the book, like Aunt Marge is described as having a mustache thicker than Vernon Dursley's because J.K. Rowling, it's like the same shit as her describing Rita Skeeter as managed. There were hints all along about J.K. Rowling being the worst. And I would just like, not to bring it down, but this scene, like I tried, because this is probably the last Harry Potter movie we'll ever do, and we'll go into that in a later episode. I tried to be more critical than I was with the first two, like just really deeply analyze. I've seen a lot of people say this about the Harry Potter franchise, and I finally started to pick up on this one. It is kind of mean-spirited sometimes. Like, what was that? The quote by Ursula Le Guin that it's ethically mean-spirited. Like, just like, look at that fat, ugly old lady who's mannish, like, who the main character beats up. Like, haha. Like, I don't know. It, well, don't... Are you seriously defending Anne Marge? No, but I'm saying that the traits that are given to villains in this series are just interesting and say a lot about the author. But anyway, the point is, Harry inflates his aunt like a balloon, like in so many different people's fanfics. I am sure that if you Google Aunt Marge, there is so much bike pump shit. Oh yeah, most definitely. Well, from there, Harry Potter runs away, mm -hmm. and he finds himself at a public park in the middle of the night, and again, the cinematography in this movie is amazing. It's all wet because it's been raining. It just feels dirty and lived in. That's one of the things that Alfonso Cuaron did very well, was having this realistic feel to it. The rain that's very big and prominent throughout the film. It feels tangible. It's very well shot. Yeah. But from there, Harry is confronted with this black dog that just walks out of the shadows, which that is one of the most terrifying shots in the entire film. Just this black dog that comes out of the woods and starts growling at him. Like, that's horrifying. Then, Harry is saved by the night bus, a three-story tall wizard bus that muggles can't see. It goes like a million miles an hour. Yeah, it drives on the wrong side of the road, and at one point it has to use magic to get thin so it can fit between two other buses. And it's an interesting scene, I guess, but it's it raises so many questions. Like, we've talked about this before. Why do they need so many different methods of transportation when they can teleport? Who is riding this bus? And why does it drive on the wrong side of the road? This is a stupid here's, series. Here's my very big question. How the fuck does the night bus work? Because Stan Stunpike says this bus is for any stranded witch or wizard. But how does it know where the wizard is? How does it know that it's stranded? It just waits there until a wizard is lost. Well, you see, magic, we don't have to explain it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, also, the bus, like, hanging from its mirror is, like, 
a severed head of a Jamaican guy who talks like this man. We're going through those buses, hey. Anyway, it takes Harry Potter to the Leaky Cauldron, the bar where he, like he just says, ah, take me to the Leaky Cauldron, because that is a business that I know. I will stay at this bar for a few weeks before classes start. Uh, wait, on the bus, he learns of this prisoner, Sirius Black, who escaped custody from essentially a concentration camp. Yeah, Azkaban is fucking horrifying. Like Harry Potter in the sixth one, it's like, oh no, Voldemort has taken over and turned this country into a fascist dictatorship. Uh, it was already a bit fascist, and we'll go over that, but holy shit, I got some thoughts about Azkaban. But yeah, he learns that Sirius Black, this convicted murderer, has escaped from Azkaban. He's the only person to ever escape from Azkaban. He makes it to the Leaky Cauldron where he meets with the Minister of Magic, Cornelius Fudge, who has taken the liberty of ordering all his books for him, which that was nice. Thank you, Minister. Yeah. Now we know where all the taxpayers' money goes to. He even ordered the tooth-covered murder book that just tries to kill Harry. Yeah, I do feel like, and this is a criticism of the books as well, I do feel like Hagrid is, like, cartoonishly an idiot. Oh, God. This man should not be a teacher. This is the one where he finally becomes a teacher, and it's like, oh, Hagrid's always wanted that. No! Do not let this man be a teacher. Our first hint at him being a teacher is him telling all the students, buy this book. It's not a regular book. It's covered in teeth and is alive and will try to kill you. Like, I like Hagrid. I think he's... Conceivably, he's very street smart, I would guess. Like, he wouldn't know. Is he, though? Because he can't keep his fucking mouth shut. No, but, like, he knows how to survive in the woods. Clearly, as demonstrated through the story. And because of that, I think he would assume not to give fucking snoots or whatever. In the books, those lobsters with that brief fire and shit for them to take care of. Mm -hmm. I think he would know that's probably a little dangerous. Yeah, this man should not be allowed around children. Yeah. It's a miracle he hasn't killed them all. After Harry gets his murder books, he goes downstairs and, oh, all of his friends are there by coincidence. That's cool. The Weasleys took a vacation to Egypt, which is a very plot-relevant, like, bit of foreshadowing in the books mm -hmm. that is never mentioned again in this version. But also, Arthur takes him away and is like, Hey, Harry, stay away from Sirius Black, because he's coming to kill you. I'm sorry, he's coming to do what? What's he doing now? Uh, what? Oh, yeah, you know that guy murdered your parents? Yeah, Sirius Black was one of his most devoted followers. And also, while he was in prison, he was just sitting there whispering, Harry. Potter, he's coming to get him, Harry Potter. Yeah, so don't worry about that. Have a fun school year, son. Ah, uh, Arthur, you're the best character, but you could have been more gentle and also actually told Harry the stuff that was important. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, also in the bar scene, this is a character fans have picked up on as being really interesting. There's just a guy reading a Stephen Hawking book and doing wandless magic. Like, that's a very interesting character who doesn't even have a goddamn name. Yeah, no, again, it's this attention to detail that Alfonso Caron has that is really fun to pick up on. And there are like little tiny moments that I'm going to mention throughout the movie that I'm like, hey, that was, that was cool to notice that I never noticed growing up as a kid and having watched all these movies. Yeah, it's just fun. From there, there's some tension between Ron and Hermione, as there usually is. This time, it's about Hermione got a pet cat named Crookshanks, 
and the cat keeps trying to kill Ron's pet rat, Scabbers. Yeah, that's not foreshadowing for anything. But I will say, that is like a good thing. Like, oh yeah, here's this rat. And it's kind of going to be this little thing. It's going to be such a minor part of the movie until it's revealed at the end. Spoiler alert for this spoiler-ridden movie that it's actually really important. Yeah, the rat is important. And also the cat is important. Like, they cut out, like, the fact that Sirius Black in his dog form has been talking to Crookshanks and Crookshanks is spying, and that's why she keeps trying to kill the rat. But nah, nah. They mentioned that Hermione's pet cat keeps trying to kill Ron's old rat that's been in his family for 12 years and is missing a toe. And side note, what 13-year-old girl names her cat Crookshanks? A girl who's read every single book in the world. Yeah, fair enough, mate. From there, they take the train to Hogwarts, when the train is stopped and this mysterious black cloaked creature appears, opens the door and starts sucking Harry Potter's soul alive. And the only reason he's saved is because the drunk dude in their cabin that was passed out, which turns out to be the best teacher at Hogwarts, he knows the spell to coincidentally get rid of them. Yeah, can we talk about how fucking terrifying that scene is? That's 90% of the reason why this movie works. The mentors are terrifying. Like, just the train stops, the lights go out, the windows get covered in frost, and then this grim reaper-looking motherfucker, this floating black cloak with bony hands floats into their carriage and tries to eat Harry's soul, and then the sleeping dude wakes up and saves the day with a spell that creates a bunch of light. Like, that's fucking awesome. This was a great introduction to Lupin, who is played brilliantly by David Thewlis. Great introduction. He's a professor who truly does care about Harry and cares about what he does. We learn later that he's the new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. Before we move on, a couple facts behind this one scene on the train in particular. J.K. Rowling created the creature of the Dementor after depression. Mm -hmm. She herself had suffered from depression on multiple occasions, or throughout her entire life, rather, not on multiple occasions. She has clinical depression, and added to the fact with the struggles in her life, not excusing anything, but, like, what the Dementor does, when you're in its presence, there is no hope. There is no positivity, no love, nothing whatsoever. You, like Ron said it best, I felt weird, like I would never be cheerful again. And that's being just in the Dementor's presence. So... The Dementor is a fantastic idea for a monster, this being that legitimately feeds off of human souls and sucks all the joy out of people in its area. That's a brilliant idea for a monster. Mm -hmm. Two, the Dementor in this film is CGI. However, they did try making, doing it practically, like they made a model out of cloth and they were like moving it through water and they were filming that to give it like this liquid feel to it. It didn't work out, that's why they did CGI. But another fun thing about this story is because it sucks all the joy out of the environment that it's in, it also sucks the warmth mm-hmm. out of it. So when the Dementor shows up, the window freezes, they start seeing their breath, and the bottle of water that is on the table next to them freezes close. Was that in the books? I don't know. I don't know. I believe that was Alfonso Caron's idea. He told production designers and the concept artists that when the Dementors showed up, he wanted the water and the rain turned to ice mm-hmm. because their presence is just pure cold. But here's the thing. He has a Mexican accent. So when he said, I want the rain to turn to ice, 
What the production designers heard was the rain turned to eyes. So they came up with a bunch of concept art with eyeballs falling from the sky. Oh, that's fucking awesome. And when he saw that, he was like, you fucking, what are you fucking doing? I said, I, ice. I said, ice, I-C-E, you dumb bitch. Miscommunication. Yeah. That's what that was. Yeah. Uh, after Harry Potter passes out, hearing his mother's voice screaming, they go to the Hogwarts feast, where it was at this point that Richard Harris, who had played Albus Dumbledore in the previous two films, by this point had unfortunately passed away. He was replaced by Michael Gambon. Another fun fact, they actually, before they approached Michael Gambon, they approached Ian McKellen. Oh, play. that would have been a great Dumbledore. Yeah. It would have. The reason why that did not happen is because apparently a couple of years earlier, Richard Harris told Ian McKellen that he is the worst actor alive. So Ian McKellen said, I am not continuing that piece of shit's legacy. Wait, hold on. Fuck Richard Harris, I guess. But Ian McKellen, the worst actor? Like, even if you didn't like him as an actor, like, surely you've seen worse. Apparently not. The school year has begun. There's a new teacher, Remus Lupin. Hagrid's been promoted. From uh, the to magical creatures. Yeah. Teacher, professor. Yeah. And we get into our normal Harry Potter school year bullshit. We get a scene where Hagrid, on the first day of class, introduces Buckbeak. This... Hippogriff. Yeah, this winged horse thing. Half half eagle, half horse. Yeah, it's like a griffin, but not lion. Whatever. And the way Hagrid teaches Hippogriff is, Okay, walk up to the Hippogriff and don't get mauled. And then if you don't get mauled, you can ride it a hundred feet in the air and hopefully you don't fall off and die. Hagrid is a terrible teacher. Buckbeak, the CGI still to this day, at this point doesn't age super well. It aged a lot better than the last two movies. That will give it credit for that. Like that, like the fucking cave troll from the first one. Mm-hmm. God damn, that looks like shit. But Buckbeak and a lot of the CGI in this movie, it's better. Not great, not perfect. It's better at some points than others, but Overall, not great. But Buckbeak, one of the things you actually pointed out, Casey, that was very, very true, is one of the things that makes Buckbeak as a character work so well is the fact that he acts like a real creature. At one point, he's, like, playing with his wing, and he's, like, stretching out and shit, and he feels like a real living creature, which works so much more in its favor. Another thing that I thought was really cool, one of the things that I thought was just a really fun detail, was uh, while Harry Potter is approaching it, there's a shot where it cuts to a wide shot of Harry walking up to Buckbeak. While Harry approaches Buckbeak, which this is after Ron pushes him towards the giant creature with fucking claws. Just like throw that out there. Thanks, Ron. But Harry walks up to Buckbeak and it cuts to a wide shot. If you look closely at the first like half a second at that wide shot, Buckbeak takes a fat shit Mm -hmm. on the ground. I don't know, that's fun. Also, you know, it like picks at its wing with its beak. But yeah, the shit. The shitting is what makes this a real animal. Anyway, after that, we get introduced properly to Lupin, the best fucking teacher. Lupin's just great. A, he's the only good defense against the dark arts teacher in the entire series. And B, he's just such a great character. This intelligent, kind, caring, 
He's like everything you want in a teacher. Mm -hmm. He's a great mentor through Harry. He eventually reveals, I was good friends with your parents, so I'm taking you under my wing. Mm -hmm. He's just this cool, nice mentor figure to Harry. And David Thulis does a great job portraying him as this intelligent, kind wizard, but also kind of getting across the vibe that, yeah, Lupin was homeless a week ago. He's very worn down by all the bad stuff in his life. And Lupin's introduction is teaching the kids how to fight a Bogart, which is a monster that shapeshifts into your worst fear. Which, I brought this up when we were watching this. I would just like to say, that Bogart is being tortured. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. Here's my argument. That creature is sentient. As far as I'm concerned, it goes into your mind, reads what your fear, what your worst fear is. Presumably, that's a, a survival technique. Mm-hmm. Presumably, right? Lupin teaches the students to think of something they think is funny and to say a spell that turns that boggart into whatever they find funny, whatever they're thinking about. And you see it when it turns into Professor Snape and approaches Neville, who is terrified of him. Then Neville gives him all of his aunt's clothes, which, nice fashion sense, Grandma. I said, I meant grandma. I know I said aunt, but I meant grandma. Um, nice fashion sense, grandma. You see the look on Snape's face. That thing is horrified, well, embarrassed, confused. It's more just confused. Like, why aren't you scared of me, small child? Yeah, but it's sentient enough to have and express emotions. Which means that he's keeping that thing locked up just to be experimented on by ch- and laughed at by children. That is torture in my eyes. I don't... Like, it's a creature that presumably feeds off fear and, ooh, I'm giving you lots of food, but then you're going to be slightly embarrassed. Like, I don't think that's super evil. Also- I'm not saying it. I'm not saying I'm not defending that creature's existence because clearly it's a bad creature. Although then again, saying it's a bad creature is very elitist of me, so. But I'm just saying, I wouldn't want to be experimented on and laughed at by children while it happens. Mm -hmm. Just saying. I think the bigger thing to talk about in relation to that scene is the fact that Neville's worst fear is Snape because Snape is such a horrible, abusive, brutal asshole, particularly to Neville for reasons. Like, he's just awful to this boy to the point where he's terrified of him. Oh, oh, but he wanted to fuck Harry's mom all along, so he wasn't really evil. No, no, Snape's still evil. Fuck Snape. I'm not defending Snape, but I think what they're going for with that is Snape was bullied. Bullies are oftentimes bullied themselves. They have this warped understanding of relationships and the power dynamics between that, and they deal with people by asserting their dominance and their power over people. And Snape was very much so bullied his entire life. Yeah, but now he's 35 and he's taking it out on 13-year-olds. I'm not defending him, and I no way disagree with you. I'm just saying the reason behind why he is so horrible to everybody, or to Neville in particular, is because he recognizes the weakness that Neville... I, I think he's horrible to all of them. It's just Neville is so sensitive, naive, that he is legitimately terrified by it. He treats Harry just as bad. And Harry's like, fuck you, dude. From there, 
Lupin and Harry have this heart-to-heart moment after Harry is unable to go to Hogsmeade because he didn't get the permission slip signed by his aunt and uncle. Yeah, like, oh, I'm sorry, Harry. I know I abandoned you in an abusive home, but your abusive adoptive parents wouldn't sign the paperwork that allows you to do school stuff, so sorry. You know what? I like you, McGonagall. You kind of suck in that scene. While all the kids go to Hogsmeade, Harry has a meeting with Lupin where he tells him that he knew his parents and he was close to them and he's going to take him under his wing because Harry is very clearly a target of the Dementors because mm-hmm. Harry has seen and experienced pain that none of his classmates really have. That's why the Dementors are drawn to him. And he wants to teach Harry because of that relationship he had with Lillian James. He wants to take him under his wing. I even think that goes more to say like just the guilt that Lupin would feel in that time because he was friends with James, Sirius, and to a lesser extent, Peter. He spent 13 years under the impression that his friend, Sirius, murdered Peter and was responsible for murdering Lily and James. So literally, in one fail swoop, all of his friends were wiped out. No doubt, he probably feels a little guilt of that. Like, I could have been there. I could have done more. And that's really a depressing thought, Mm -hmm. honestly. And he wants to repay that. He wants to do more. He wants to repay his debt. Honestly, this movie introduces some phenomenal characters into this world. Lupin and later on Sirius Black. Yeah, I will say that's one of the great strengths of the Harry Potter series. Like, we complained about the first one being kind of simplistic and like black and white. As it goes on, it gets more complex and three-dimensional characters, and Lupin is one of the series' best. So anyway, also this year at Hogwarts is See the Future class with Mrs. Trelawney, or however that's pronounced. Played by Emma Thompson very well, I might add. Yeah, this weirdo teacher who teaches you to see the future, except not really. Like, she can go into a state where she can actually see the future, but most of the time she's just full of shit and keeps telling students they're gonna die. Also, I feel like Harry Potter should just be unfazed, like, oh my god, I looked into your future. There will be great suffering and people trying to murder you. Uh, yeah, I know. I'm Harry Potter. Yeah, there was this great scene in the book. The, the scene where Trelawney looks into Harry's fortune and predicts the Grim, which is like the omen of death and he's gonna die and shit like that. In the movie, that's done for like this big dramatic effect. Like, oh shit, this is what's gonna happen. And to an extent, that is also in the book. But in the book, it's also followed up by this scene where they go to McGonagall's class and she's all like, why are you guys so stone-faced? You guys all seem horrified. Where where did you just come from? They go, Trelawney's class? And she goes, oh, Jesus Christ. Who's dying this year? Harry Potter? Yeah, Harry, listen. She predicts death every single year. Don't fucking listen to that lunatic. But also... That was hilarious. But also, she can genuinely see the future and also will eventually reveal this to you. You know, we don't tell you things about yourself either. But yeah, Harry, she has predicted before, and it was a real prophecy, that Voldemort's gonna murder you. Actually, you know what? Maybe they shouldn't tell him to 13-year-old Harry. That's a lot on his chest. Another thing that I was very intrigued by... Again, going to Lupin's character as a strength, going back to that, Lupin says Voldemort. He's not afraid of that. 
That's actually very profound for a character in the wizarding world to say Voldemort without hesitation. Mm -hmm. He's talking to Mr. Weasley and he's like, don't say his name. Don't say that name. Well, Lupin's like, I thought that Bogart would have turned into Lord Voldemort. Again, layers to characters. It's Mm -hmm. amazing how well-defined characters can make a movie so much better. Yeah. So, it wouldn't be a Harry Potter movie without some Quidditch. And by some Quidditch, I mean Harry Potter being horribly injured while playing Quidditch. Like, this is the third time this has happened. Actually, I kind of think Umbridge banning Harry from Quidditch, I kind of think maybe that was the right thing to do, considering how often that child gets injured. Yeah. They're playing Quidditch, again, going back to the ongoing theme of Hogwarts being a fucking death trap. They're playing Quidditch in a thunderstorm, and another player gets struck by lightning and falls off his broom. And then Harry gets mauled by a Dementor and falls off his broom. This is a death trap sport. And it's also really stupid. I know we've talked about that before, but it's such a stupid sport, honestly. It is, it is. It's such a shame that a very close friend of mine at Columbia College Chicago, where we attend, is the captain of the Quidditch team this year. And they are very nice, very close friend, as I said. But, I mean, I'd play a game of Quidditch. I probably will. But at the end of the day, I'm like... It's a stupid game. It's anyway, so dumb. This is also after the scene where Lupin is unable to return to this Pence Against the Dark Arts class the day after the full moon, mm-hmm. incidentally. And then Snape shows up to teach the class because he's always had an interest in teaching Defense Against the Dark Arts, but he's always had such a natural inclination to potions. That's why he's always taught potions. Yeah, also, Dumbledore wants to keep him around, and Defense Against the Dark Arts is cursed. You will die within a year of taking that job. So, you know, what friends of mine do I, Albus Dumbledore, still have left? Let's see. Uh, ooh, Mad-Eye Moody. Hope nothing bad happens to him. Side note, I know we're not going to cover that movie, but can you just imagine that conversation of Dumbledore coming up to Mad-Eye Moody after finding out that he's been in prison for the last year in that fucking suitcase? And he goes, hey, you want to be a defense against a dark arts teacher next year? And Mad-Eye Moody's like, Fuck you. But anyway, in that scene where Snape is taking over, a lot of people criticize Harry Potter for just having blatant foreshadowing, like, in the classroom. They will learn about what they need to know in the climax. And in this, it's kind of like that. Snape just teaches them about werewolves, and the climax involves a werewolf. But in this case, it's justified because Snape is a petty bitch who knows Lupin is a werewolf and wants the students to figure it out so Lupin will get fired because Snape is a petty man-child and just hates the guy who bullied him in high school, so he wants him to be fired and homeless. Would be a shame if people fired Snape for the shit he did when he was younger. I love how he specified, he's like, you will write a two-page essay about how to figure out if someone is a werewolf. I love that. Hmm, I wonder if Snape is hinting at something. Mm-hmm. But then that continues on to the Quidditch game where Harry is attacked by Dementors. He wakes up, his broom is destroyed, and Dumbledore evicted all the Dementors who were protecting the school, which I don't think we mentioned that earlier. The Dementors are the guards of Azkaban, and they were protect- surrounding the school, protecting it from essentially Sirius Black. Yeah. And but they just keep trying to murder Harry Potter. Like, hey, this is an actual Dumbledore this time. Hey, Cornelius, 
A, why do you guard your prisons with these murderous monsters that don't have any allegiance other than they want to kill people? And B, why are you just letting them float around in public? Oh, a guy escaped. Well, I better let the child murdering monsters just fly around the countryside. Hope they don't murder anyone. Yeah, no. Also, can we talk about Azkaban? That is some fucked up inhumane treatment like even for the worst murderers sucking their souls out so they can feel happiness is fucked up and it's made worse by the fact that the criminal justice system in harry potter best shown by this book is a fucking nightmare sirius black was an innocent man and he went to prison and the second one hagrid an innocent man goes to prison they have truth serum they have mind readers but they don't use those in criminal trials, I guess. They just, uh, you were around the scene of the crime, so go to the soul-sucking-out place forever. And also, a lot of Death Eaters argued that they only did what they did under the influence of the Imperious Curse. So they believed they were mind-controlled. You would think that they would use some truth serum on them. Yeah. To be, hey, are you lying to me? Yes? Yeah, you're going to jail. So here's the problem with Harry Potter is this society is really fucked up and it's supposed to be fucked up, but like the ending isn't really about fighting that or fixing shit or reforming the system. It's just about fighting the worse evil. Yeah, like fighting the worse evil. Like the Ministry of Magic should be the big bad of this series. I'd argue they're worse than Voldemort. I wouldn't necessarily. Well, but I, they I, definitely. I, I, I understand where you're coming from, but I personally believe that Voldemort, being essentially a Nazi, well, and who is trying to subjugate under a fascist regime both the wizarding and the Muggle world, I would argue that Voldemort is worse in his ideals. To, yeah, and in what his goals are. Yeah. Then again, that I'm not saying that the the, the Ministry is no. But my point either. is, can I say my point? Go ahead. No, but on the other hand, the Ministry is filled with his fascist minions, and they keep slavery. And they have the torture prisons. And as soon as he comes along, as soon as he comes along, the entire Ministry of Magic is like, woohoo, we're fascists now. Like, the Ministry fucking sucks. Yeah, it and does. it probably still sucks at the end of the books, but they don't really care about it. It's like, oh, Big Bad's defeated. Everything's good now. Let's do the epilogue. Yes. But my art thing is the Ministry does these horrible things with the intention on Oh, the ends justify the means. That's not good. That's not good. But Voldemort is like, no, we are going to actively extinguish an entire race of people that we just hate for the betterment of a select few. Well, that is for the greater good ends justify the means. Well, no, like... I mean, he thinks that, and I'm does. pretty sure the what I mean, slave-ownering what I mean is, torturers also believe that. What I mean by that is the ministry, and I'm not going to get into like a whole political thing, the motivation of the ministry is we want what's best for the average wizard, and, average. and to keep it separate from the muggle world, so that they are just ignorant to what's happening. Voldemort is like, no, half the wizarding world, we're just going to get rid of them. And the entirety of the muggle world, we're going to get rid of them. In terms of evil, they're both evil. But I would argue in terms of what Voldemort wanted to do and his ideals, it was much worse. Mm -hmm. Because he wanted to extinguish more people. Like We've gotten off topic. It is, yes. But my point is, I think Voldemort is more evil. That said, the Ministry of Magic is maybe two notches above that. We got a bit off topic. Back to the 
dumb plot of this book, Fred and George give Harry a magic map that allows you to see everyone and where they are at Hogwarts and all the secret paths. Yeah. It's not explained what this map is or where it went to. Like, that's one of the big things I started to realize in this one. And I heard it, it was, I forget who it was, someone on the RT podcast who brought it up, and now I can't unsee it. These movies are gibberish if you don't read the books. Like, so much plot relevant details... They exist, they just aren't mentioned, like in the climax. Why does Lupin just turn into a werewolf? Oh, because Snape's a spiteful asshole and didn't make his potion. Everything about the Marauder's Map isn't ever explained. Nope. Especially when later on when Harry is caught trying to find Peter Pettigrew in the halls. Later on when Lupin confiscates the Marauder's Map from Harry, he acts like he knows exactly what it is, knows how to use it, and everything. And it's never explained how he knows any of that. That said, the reason why in the books is because he fucking created it. Yeah, also, how? Like, James Sirius and Lupin were phenomenal wizards as 15-year-olds. Mm-hmm. I would like to say there's another fun fact behind the making of this movie. Alfonso Caron really wanted a more personal connection between the cast and himself as the director mm-hmm. of the movie. That's why he encouraged more, you know, realistic clothing for the characters because Harry, Ron, and Hermione wear actual clothes. Yeah, they dress like people when they aren't in class. Right, exactly. And even when they're in class, Alfonso Cuaron would tell all the cast and the extras, according to your character, how would comfortable would you feel dressing in this context? Yeah. Go right ahead. When they're in, like, divinations, they're more, like, prim and proper mm-hmm. and well-dressed. When they're with Hagrid, some of them are, like, rolling up their sleeves, untying their ties, untucking their shirts and stuff like that. So it's more personal connection with the kids that are portraying the students of Hogwarts. The reason why I bring this up is because Alfonso Caron really wanted to connect with Daniel Radcliffe, Emma Watson, and Rupert Grint. During the production of this movie, he, assi- he, ma- he gave them homework for the production of this movie. And he said, I want you to write a page-long essay on your character that you're playing in this movie in your character. Like, write an essay about yourself in the context of your character. Daniel Radcliffe turned in a page-long essay that was good, you know, Mm -hmm. nothing special, because that's what Harry would do. Emma Watson turned in a 16-page thesis essay about Hermione Granger. Rupert Grint did not turn anything, because that's what Ron would do. He just wouldn't turn in his homework. Hermione would go above and beyond to do anything. That right there is when we know they cast perfectly. Anyway, as the film goes on, Harry and co. come back from class to discover that Sirius Black has broken into the castle and slashed up all the paintings. For some reason, why did he do that? I don't know. Maybe it's explained in the books, but I haven't read those since I was like 10. That's a weird thing. Like, the fuck you got against the paying of the fat lady? Was it Peter? Well, in that case, why? And here's my thing, too. I'm also half-joking with this. But, like, each dormitory is protected by a password that you have to tell the painting, Mm -hmm. right? Hypothetically, if uh, Gryffindor is fucking a Hufflepuff, says, hey, come to my dormitory in the middle of the night after hours. Here's the password. Do you honestly expect that person to keep the secret? Like, that's just stupid. I get here we have keys and key fobs and stuff that, like, will, like, connect to the locks and stuff. But there it's like, no, you just need to know a word. How much would I, If Twitter existed in the Hogwarts universe, you'd just see Gryffindors walking in and out of the sleep. 
Slytherin dormitory. Yeah. Just saying. That's stupid. Again, stupid. Also, here's my question. Sirius Black, right? He attacked the, the fat lady. Not a single other... That hallway is covered in dozens, hundreds of paintings of people who are seeing what happened. They don't ask anyone apart from the fat lady. No one saw anything. No one saw shit. The painting next to him like, hey, yeah, that was Sirius Black. Or no, that wasn't Sirius Black. Was it Sirius Black in the books? I don't remember. I don't remember, and it isn't explained. Like I said, this movie is kind of gibberish. Also, two more things while we're on the topic. Number one, so like her painting sentient? That's a whole can of worms. And yeah. two, this is why you don't have paintings as doors. Because they can't get into their bedroom because the door got scared and ran away. From there, they lock down Hogwarts. Fred and George give Harry the map, and Harry uses the invisibility cloak to go to Hogsmeade, which, why the fuck didn't he think of that like three months ago? Actually, yeah, why doesn't he just walk down the road in the invisibility cloak or go on a broom? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Also, how the fuck did Fred and George know how to use the Marauder's Map? Yeah. Because that seems like a very specific spell on a very specific piece of parchment. Harry goes to Hogsmeade through the cellar of the candy store, which, by the way, I don't know if you've ever been to the Universal Studios Harry Potter world or whatever. The candy store there... I will say, this is a bit of a fun history in my family. We went like many years ago to the Harry Potter world at Universal Studios and we went to the uh, candy store and what they do is they give you bags and you fill it up with candy and you pay for it. It's very overpriced. We got like maybe a pound of candy and it was like 50 bucks. It is fucking stupid. There was this one type of candy called Crybabies. They're like in the shape of teardrops. They're like a hard candy that when you bite into, it's extremely sour. Well, we got that. We filled like a third of the bag up with that. And my mom, dad, and sister hated crybabies. I loved it. So for the rest of that summer, I had an entire bag of sour candies from Harry Potter World to myself. That's a bit of a fun fact for me. Another thing about me personally with my family, Harry Potter, he enters through a secret tunnel through a candy store, which you think the landlord knew about that? I mean, of course they know about it. That's how they sneak into the castle to kidnap students to cut up and turn into candy. Very That's true. what my Harry Potter fanfic is about. It's better than most Harry Potter fanfics. Yeah, very true. Actually, I did write a Harry Potter fanfic once. Oh, sure. <laughs> Fucking loser. It was about the Stephen Hawking guy. Well, of course it was. He makes his way through the uh, sweet shop and he steals Neville Longbottom's lollipop. You son of a bitch. Honestly, that is one of my biggest pet peeves. I swear to fucking God. Like, my sister would do that all the time with me growing up. Like, Oh, she would turn invisible and steal your candy? No, we would, like, there would be a... Harry Potter is in a candy store. He has a literal store filled with candy to take from. And he takes right from the hands of Neville Longbottom. Like, he literally could have just gone fucking six inches away and just been like, I'll take that right the there. The seventh one should have ended with, oh, Neville's got the sword. He's going to, what? He stabbed Harry. This is for the lollipop all those years back. It really should have been. Like, growing up, my sister would always, I'd, like, we'd have leftovers, right? Mm -hmm. And I'd make a bowl of leftovers. There would be the Tupperware container filled with all the leftovers that are for everyone. And then this bowl that I have designated for myself. And my sister would be standing right, if my sister were standing there, she would, no questions asked, just start barehanding the food right out of my bowl. 
honestly, since childhood, that is a... And again, we're adults now. We're both over 18. We move on. No judgment, whatever. We were kids. The point of what I'm trying to say is, from an early age, it is a deep pet peeve of mine. This is mine, okay? This is my food that I am consuming right now. You have literally all the other food surrounding you, and you just take from mine. Fuck you. That is a genuine pet peeve of mine. When there is there is a giant Tupperware thing of food that you could take from, and then there's my personal bowl that I'm making for myself, and you just take from mine. God damn, you're really mad about Fuck this. Fuck you. I know it is. I know. I I I don't. I I I understand why. I don't like it. I don't like that I am angry. But li- literally, this is how much. This has happened to me. This is how passionate I get about this particular subject. Like, Harry Potter, you're in a sweet shop. Take literally anything except out of the hands of your friends. That's all I'm saying. Actually, that reminds me of my own stupid story about younger siblings being assholes around sweets. Like, I like to bake a lot, and like, this one time I made a pan of brownies, and then I opened them out the next day, and there are three pieces missing from the middle. Not like cut from the edge, just like, cut out from the middle. Specifically, a circle, and then another circle, and then a long oval. So that's my brother versus your sister. Who's worse? I don't know. But anyway, in the plot, Harry, while wandering around Hogsmeade, overhears, because he always overhears plot-relevant details. It's how the books work. Mm -hmm. He overhears Fudge talking about, hey, did you know that Sirius Black is Harry's godfather? Yeah, he was best friends with Harry's parents and then got them killed. And Harry does not take it well. He very angrily, in 13-year-old Daniel Radcliffe's best acting, says, I'm gonna kill him! Mm-hmm. Here's my take on that scene. He learns in that scene that Sirius Black killed Peter Pettigrew, mm-hmm. and the only thing left was a finger. Foreshadowing. And then told Voldemort where his parents were, and then got them killed subsequently. I will say this about the response scene. Daniel Radcliffe portrays two emotions in that scene, in that response scene. Sadness and anger. Just to like boil it down to two single simple emotions. Sadness and anger. The sadness was portrayed as a 13 year old would. The anger wasn't that bad. Personally, I didn't think him portraying the anger where he's like, he was their friend and I'm gonna kill him. That I thought was, granted this might have been in comparison to him not crying. Point is, the sadness, him crying there, that was stupid, that was corny, that was cheesy. But the anger, I don't know, I thought he did a good job with that. And to be fair, it is a bit cheesy because of this child actor, but I do like Harry's arc in this, where he finds out this is the guy who kills your parents. I want to track him down, I want to kill him for revenge. And then at the end, he says, no, I don't want this, I just want to find out the truth. Like, Harry has a good arc in this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially since this is the scene where he learns what everyone's talking about. Because they're all like, Harry, don't go looking for this guy. Why? No reason. Then he finds well, now out I want to go looking for him. Yeah, exactly. Because he told me no. Yeah, exactly. But from there, Harry is trained by Lupin how to deal with the Boggart, how to, or well, rather, a Dementor. Through Boggart disguised as a Dementor because Lupin don't want Harry to die. Yeah, he learns how to use the Patronus charm, mm-hmm. which that's a great scene. Being that connection between Harry and Lupin, I could have gone for that being, I get that there's a time constraint. This is a 140-hour movie. I get You it. were off by 60 times, but yeah. What? You said hour, not minute. No, 100, oh, minutes. That's what I meant. 
Yeah, I get that this is a 140-minute movie, but, like, I could have gone for that scene to be longer. Like, he just fails once, and then he stops, and then he succeeds. And you get that connection between uh, Lupin and Harry really well. And he, Lupin keeps handing him chocolate, which stimulates dopamine. Yeah, chocolate makes you happy. That's why Lupin gives it. Nice exactly. little nod. So, at this point, with, like, half the movie left, it reaches... What is normally the climax in these movies very soon because the climax is very long. Mm -hmm. If you saw this in theaters and couldn't like pause and see how many minutes left, you would probably think this movie ends 40 minutes before it does. Yeah. By the way, Harry and the gang, they go to Hagrid's because Hagrid's pet bird horse, Buckbeat, is going to be executed. They sentenced an animal to death because it kicked a kid. A kid that deserved it, by the way. I mean, Malfoy had it coming. Hagrid should have been fired. But like... If a horse kicks a kid, do they just shoot the horse in the head? Depends on who owns the horse. I don't know. That feels weird. But yeah, Harry, Ron, and Hermione, they go there and they watch from trees. They don't see it actually happen, but they see the axe get swung and see the birds fly away as Buckbeat is executed by an executioner. It isn't just putting an animal down. The dude with the hood and the axe does it. Like... Also, side note, what the fuck was that thing in Hagrid's hut? That fucking men in black plant monster that was in an egg? What the fuck was that? That was horrifying. Yeah, I don't know. Never explained. Yeah, and after Buckbeak dies, Ron's pet rat runs away, and then the doggy shows up, and it bites Ron and drags him away into the shrieking shack, which is underneath the murder tree from the second one that they still have. Which, side note, I would like to say, the Whomping Willow, this may be redundant, but that thing actively chooses violence it every does. goddamn day. And I know that that's the Whomping Willow. Like, anyone that gets near it, it will beat the shit out of it. Twice! But side note! Twice in this movie, a bird flies by and it kills it. And not just that, yes, absolutely, but not just that. Like, the bird is actively flying. You see the, the, the tree, like, wind up a branch and then flick it to death. It saw it coming. It was anticipating, like, this bitch gonna get it. Like, that fucking... Fuck you! Yeah. That birdie didn't deserve it. Yeah. But anyway, there's this really corny scene where Hermione, like, flings Harry into the entry hole. Yeah, it's dumb. Like, the tree picks her up and is, like, swinging her around. And then it shows, like, Harry and Hermione, who is at the dead stop, grabs him. And then Harry gets dragged with her and they go into the shack where the doggy turns into serious Black. Dun dun dun. Which, that was actually really convincing. Like, having grown up with these movies, that was really cool. Seeing Sirius Black, his mannerisms, what he was talking about, where he goes, no, only one of you is going to die tonight. It's such a cool misdirection mm -hmm. of what's actually happening. Gary Oldman is great as Sirius Black. Oh yeah, especially at this point where he's just decrepit mm -hmm. and anorexic. He's covered in dirt and tattoos because yeah. he's been tortured for the better part of 12 years. Yeah, and I would like to know, so Lupin shows up with Wand and he doesn't take out Sirius Black. He hugs him because they're in love. And then he's like, so, want to kill him? Yeah, I've been waiting for this for 12 years. Let's kill him. And Harry, like, freaks out. 
dudes, just explain, like, I didn't kill your parents. Like, as soon as you see Harry say that, as opposed to, only one person's gonna die. I've been waiting so long for this. Like, you're being unnecessarily suspicious. Mm-hmm. And honestly, if you had gone along with it, then maybe they would have understand what was going on before that douchebag Snape shows up. Uh-huh. Also, side note. Harry Potter's 13 years old in this movie. Mm-hmm. He is a fucking strong boy. Right, right. Earlier, there's a scene where he in the invisibility cloak beats up Malfoy. And by beats up, I mean just picks him up and drags him away really fast. Harry Potter is like an average-sized kid. But, like, there's a scene where he is, like... That, that, that scene where he fucks with Malfoy, Crab, and that other kid, not Boyle, but he's dragging Malfoy by the feet. Also, he's wearing a giant fucking blanket uh-huh. over his eyes at this entire point. He's, like, dragging this kid with ease through that. And he picks up this grown man, which I guess he's also anorexic because he's been in a concentration camp for the last 12 years. Mm-hmm. But he, like, drags him and slams him to the ground. He's 13 years old. He has that puberty strength. Harry's a strong boy. But anyway, Snape, that massive donger, shows up and ruins everything. And honestly, earlier you were talking about layers. I do think that is something that is best exemplified by this scene. Where, as the series goes on, you look back and Snape's motivations in this change. Like, because he tries to kill Sirius Black. At first it's like, oh, it's because Snape's a dick. But then you learn that Sirius bullied Snape, and it's like, oh, it's because he's a petty asshole. And then you learn that actually Snape was in love with Harry's mother, who he thinks Sirius killed, and it's like, oh, it's because he's an incel. Very true. Harry straight up murks Snape and allows Lupin and Sirius to explain the situation to him, where they say that because... Harry saw Peter Pettigrew walking throughout the halls of Hogwarts, which yeah, we did not mention. I would like to say that's an interesting scene for me because he's going after Peter Pettigrew, who he <laughs> knows to be dead. And that entire scene, you can hear the scurrying of little mouse feet. That's foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't find anything. He is confronted by Snape and later Lupin, who deal with the situation accordingly. But Harry is using his wand to light the hallway, Lumos, which is a spell that just in this film was introduced. Lupin and Snape were not using that spell, which means they were just walking in the pitch black halls of Hogwarts without light. Just I mean, walking. Snape would. He would. He's a fucking... He is so goth. Like, he chooses to wear all black and have the long hair and be kind of evil. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it's revealed that Ron's pet rat, who he sleeps with, is actually a grown man? Yeah. Uh, wh- why do you do this, Peter Pettigrew? Why are you staying with this small child? Peter's a fucking creep. And also, he murdered Harry Pear. Well, he contributed to the murder of Harry's parents. Because it does explain in the book, Sirius gave the knowledge of where Lily and James were to Peter Mm -hmm. because he, for whatever reason, couldn't hold on to the information anymore. Peter Pettigrew is turned back into a human and he has a lot of rodent features, which is due to the fact that he had spent 12 years straight as a rat. Mm -hmm. Like, his human form is very reminiscent of that of a rat. They interrogate him and Harry convinces Lupin and Sirius to not kill him and say, no, we're going to do this the right way. 
they go back out the way they came through the Whomping Willow, which, by the way, the Shrieking Shack set is incredible. Mm-hmm. Like, it's constantly moving to the wind. It's constantly being blown in ways. It was a great set. And that was the scene where we really get an introduction to one of the best characters in the entire series, Sirius Black. He's like this decrepit, tortured soul who's been accused of horrible things that he never would have. After he clearly states to Peter Pettigrew, he's like, I would have rather died than give up Lillian James. So it's like this complete 180 in our perspective on this character. You now know that he is an incredible, genuinely good person accused of horrible things that he did not commit and tortured because of it. And Gary Oldman does a phenomenal job. There's this heart-to-heart where he's like, I'm your godfather, and if you want to live with me, then you absolutely can, which is a great gesture. That said, Sirius Black is on the run from Azkaban, being hunted by Dementors. What the fuck home is he going to offer Harry? I mean, he owns a house, and presumably things will be nice after they turn Peter in. Like, it's such a good thing. Harry's on the verge of getting everything he ever wanted. He has a real father now and doesn't have to be in his abusive, brutal home. Actually, JK, it's the full moon, and Lupin turns into a werewolf, and Peter just runs away. Well, shit. Mm -hmm. That was a horrifying scene. It does an extreme close-up on Lupin's eye, transforms, then it pulls back, and just the look on Lupin's face and his transformation, and as Sirius Black is holding him, trying to convince him, like, no, that's not who you are. It it was such a horrifying scene, and as Lupin turns into this werewolf, which is never explained in the movies, but it's explained very well in the book. Yeah, in the books, that he was attacked by Greyback as a book and infected with werewolfism, lycanthropy, which J.K. Rowling has said is, like, a metaphor for AIDS, and I don't... Much like the racism stuff in the second one, I don't know that metaphor really flocks because I don't think being gay and getting AIDS makes you want to murder children. So anyway, in this scene that's really weirdly lit, I don't know why it was lit like that. It looks, well, because of the full moon and it looks nice, but it's just kind of weirdly bright, whatever. In this scene, Peter gets away, and then Lupin chases after them, and then eventually it ends up with Harry and Sirius by a lake, injured, and hey, the lake's turning to ice, oh fuck. It's all the Dementors, like 50 of them. They essentially suck out Sirius Black's soul, it's called the Dementor's Kiss where they actively suck out a person's soul. It doesn't kill them, but it makes them a shell of a human being for the rest of their life. Just before that happens, they are saved by a giant uh, Patronus charm in the form of a stag. And Harry believes it's his dad. We, We know this because the following scene, Harry wakes up from a coma and goes, I saw my dad. Which, that's a funny thing to say. As soon as you get out of a coma, from there you learn that Lupin, as a werewolf, is still on the run. Sirius Black is in prison in the Northern Tower of Hogwarts. Yeah, Dumbledore, I do like Dumbledore in this. He doesn't go and save Sirius because playing the politics game, but Dumbledore just tells the kids to do it. In the most cryptic way, like, hey, you should use Buckbeak to save Sirius. No, no, no. There is a way to save two innocent lives. Why you gotta be so cryptic, Dumbledore? Because Dumbledore is making 
making sure that Harry is competent enough to be killed. Yeah. I love that. There was this TikTok I saw recently, and I brought this up last night. Like, Dumbledore, there's this evil Nazi who's trying to take over the entire world. What should I... What What are you going to do about it? I don't know, Harry. What are you going to be doing about it? Dude, I'm 12. What the fuck? And then we reach the interesting thing of this movie that isn't really foreshadows. It's kind of a deus ex machina. Like, I mean, it has Hermione's just popping up always because she's time traveling around. But yeah, they gave Hermione a time machine for some reason. They don't explain. In the books, it's because she was taking off classes. I feel like they should have just said, hey, you should take less classes before giving her a goddamn time machine. But Hermione uses her time machine to travel back a few hours so they can save everything. They basically retrace their steps. They save Buckbeak. They distract the werewolf from attacking Harry Potter, which can I, I would like to say, the werewolf in this movie, again, the CGI does not exactly hold up mm-hmm. as we've established. Again, the scene is very strangely lit. I feel like they were going for more of a fairy tale fantasy type thing, but still it's a little weird. I don't think it's as weird as you do. I think it works for what they're going for, but you, you and Raylan, who we watched this with, watch our Last Airbender and Killer Clowns from Outer Space episodes, you guys both like, we're not fans of the lighting. I mean, it's fine. It's just, it's just weird. I thought it worked stylistically for what they were going through, but I admit it was a bit much. I will say, though, I'm a huge fan of the design of the werewolf. Like, this scrawny, anorexic, like, creepy looking monster like typically when you think of werewolves it's this big imposing monster that's just gonna overpower you with sheer strength but no like Corone specifically wanted this skinny monstrosity of a creature that like it looks like it it's barely being kept together and it adds this creep factor it differentiates itself from other werewolf movies and it also adds a sense of creepiness to it Mm -hmm. just this gray skinned skinny as hell monster with huge limbs i think the design is great the other problem i had is the framing of the werewolf within the shots could have been better mm-hmm. i think one thing that raylan actually brought up was if the werewolf was shot more like alien you know how the xenomorph was framed in mm-hmm. alien you barely see it it's often in the shadows and it's more of a practical effect i think it would have been more horrifying then again this is a pg movie and that's what they were going for but the point is i think the design itself is a great idea that said it is 2003 2004 cgi it is weird lighting weird framing he's often backlit by the light of the moon but yet the front of him is very very well lit so it's just this gray blob that just doesn't make sense within the context so i think the werewolf itself is creepy especially later on in the scene when hermione distracts the werewolf from killing harry earlier because there was this random howl that mm-hmm. he heard from the woods and followed them yeah that was hermione going back in time Ooh, yeah she didn't, she didn't she didn't think about the fact that maybe the werewolf would come after her now didn't think about that but they're walking through the woods, going around that giant redwood, or whatever that tree is called. In Scotland? Fuck what? you. That scene where they're going around the tree, and the wolf, like, like is still standing there like, oh, okay, that's where you are. And do you see its eyes glowing as canine eyes do when light reflects them in a certain way? Fucking horrifying. Mm-hmm. That said, 
It's particularly in that scene, especially when he like transforms and he lifts open his arm and Sirius Black just goes wee off the cliff. Point is, lighting, framing, CGI, not great. Design, great. So anyway, after they save Buckbeak, Harry realizes, wait a minute, I can go see my dad. And he goes to the lake and no dad, Sirius gonna die. And Harry steps in and finally, full strength, cast the Patronus charm and save Sirius from all the Dementors in the past. And like, just as grown as a person enough to do it. It's a great ending. Yeah, and he's powerful enough to do that. Like, it's later explained that if a Patronus is strong enough, your hopes are able to embody themselves in a sentient animal form of the spell. And he gives enough of himself and enough hope and love that he's able to turn it into a stag, which is later on explained why it's a stag. Yeah, because his dad's was. And his mom's was a doe. And Snape's is a doe. And Lupin's is a wolf. Yeah, of course. Because, of course it is. Yep, of course. And yours is a hyena. Right, right. And mine's a dog. He rescues Harry and Sirius, which, side note, I would like to say, when her earlier in the movie, when they're watching themselves in Hagrid's hut, and Hermione throws the rocks into the room, like, she throws it at the vase. When they were in that scene, the vase breaks. It, like, breaks in half. And then when Hermione, later on in the movie, throws it, the vase breaks completely. So it's not the exact same as what happened earlier in the movie. That bugged the hell out of me as a kid. It's nitpicking, I admit, but it bugged the hell out of me as a kid. Want to talk about a nitpick that every single time I watch a Harry Potter movie with my father, he brings up, Hagrid's house moves between movies. He hates that. Yeah. Oh, one more nitpick. When they go to rescue Sirius on Buckbeat after the Dementor scene, there's just no guards. I mean, I get it's because Dumbledore, but Jesus. Fudge was there. Like, how did you get away with not having a guard? I also love Dumbledore in the the time travel scenes because he clearly knows what the hell's going on. He's distracting Cornelius. (laughs) He's all like, what's your name? He goes, I mean, I have a very long name. Do you sure you have time to write it all down and stuff like that? And he's like, yeah, just tell me your name. And then later on when they exit, he's giving the kids enough time to free Buckbeak. Mm -hmm. Which side note, the previous one had the latter half of the movie predominantly with Harry and Ron. Mm -hmm. This one is predominantly Harry and Hermione. So cool. Yeah, Uh, and Ron will never be predominant again, unfortunately. Also, Ron is a fucking whiny asshole in this movie. Yeah. He whines and complains every single scene. Also, on the topic of Ron, when Harry and Hermione get back from time traveling, Ron's like, wait a minute, you went out the south door and then time traveled, and now you came in the north door. Well, how'd you do that? What you're talking about? We didn't do anything. Did they just fucking gaslight Ron? Why? Why can't you tell him about your journeys, you fucking asshole? Also, I do love that scene where Cornelius is like, we must search the Hogwarts grounds for Buckbeak. And Dumbledore has my favorite line in this movie. We must search the skies if we must, Minister. But in the meantime, I would like a nice cup of tea or a large brandy. And then Hagrid goes, there ain't no small glasses in this hut, Dumbledore. Oh, another dumb little thing in this, because the executioner, they see him like swing his axe on something. Oh, he was just hitting a pumpkin because he was mad. Why? Those are Hagrid's pumpkins that are growing in March for some reason. The blade needed to taste blood. Yeah. Sirius has his one final goodbye to Harry Mm -hmm. and Hermione. It was so sweet, so heartfelt. Mm -hmm. Gary Oldman is such a phenomenal actor. 
And Lupin also gets a really nice heartfelt goodbye to Harry. He got fired because fucking Snape, that asshole. Oh yeah, he wants vengeance on the guys that bullied him. That said, vengeance is not great, but... Hey, hope the people that Snape was a fucking Nazi to don't want vengeance. I know, right? Why is this a sympathetic character? Lupin is fired. He gives the Marauder's Map back to Harry. Uh, what happens after that? Nothing, really. It just kind of ends. Well, actually, no. There's a big scene where Harry gets a new broom from Sirius. How did Sirius afford this? He's been in jail for 12 years. He stole it. Hey, crime uncle. He's like, I'm Sirius Black. I have a giant hippogriff right here. You don't want to fuck with me. Just give me that broom. And he gave him that broom. And yeah, freeze frame on Harry flying the... Firebolt? Firebolt. That's it. Good spell. Yeah, come to the credits where it's the Marauder's Map and there's just people fucking. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to explain that. So, overall, I think either this or maybe the fourth or fifth is the best Harry Potter movie. This is great. Mm-hmm. The darker tone, the deeper characters while still having that mysticism and weird magic stuff. Admittedly, as we go on and I keep analyzing these, I start to notice the flaws in the series more and more. Mm-hmm. But still, this film, it has some good writing and some great acting. Yeah, absolutely. I think this film was a necessary next step for the Harry Potter franchise and set the tone and the aesthetic for the rest of the franchise, which is what really needed to happen. It was very modernized. And I think Alfonso Cuaron did an incredible job. On a scale of 1 to 10, I'm going to give it an 8.5 out of 10. I agree with you. It's definitely top three Harry Potter. It is the best, if not second best. It's second... Okay, here's what I'll say. I think it's the best Harry Potter movie. In terms of my personal subjective opinion, it is either my first or second favorite. It's either between four or five. But it is a great movie. Nostalgic. Very fun. People of all ages can enjoy. Just rich in atmosphere. Great acting. Great characters. It's a great movie. This is a really good movie. It's a shame it's based on a book by the leader of a hate movement, which makes me not want to praise it or even do any of the sequels because I feel bad praising the writing of these movies, but they are well written. I like this. Fucking J.K. Rowling, you suck. 8.5 out of 10. It's a good movie. Yep. Uh, what are we doing next week? The Shining. The Shining. Nice. Stay tuned next week for our review of the iconic Stanley Kubrick film, The Shining. If you want to hear more about our show, you can follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at Silver Age Silver Screen, where we post updates to the show and other updates in cinema, nerd cinema. You can find me personally on Instagram and TikTok and Twitch now on Riley James Thorpe, where I post a lot of fun content there. And you can follow me on YouTube at Riley Thorpe, where I have a bunch of short films. And I just recently posted a two-part documentary series about my experience at the Marvel Universe of Superheroes exhibit at the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry. Please check those out. I put a lot of effort into all those. And I have a lot more content coming soon. Casey, what about you? You can find me on Twitter at JarmsCasey, J-A-R-M-E-S-C-A-S-E-Y. Be sure to check out Hell of a Game. It's a D&D podcast podcast that I DM for. We'll be back next week, assuming we don't get locked out of our apartment because the stupid painting got cut up. And as always, I'm Casey Jarms. And I'm Riley Thorpe. And hey, 
It's just a movie. Don't lose your head about it. Especially not to an executioner, dude. Also, fuck J.K. Rowling. Just, just fuck her.